Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. We're on to the last episode of the year 2020. Glad to see this year go, that's for sure. This will be uh, episode 174, Classic Spotlight Series, Maya Angelou. Now, Maya is, I, I feel, in, in a small class by herself in the sense of and, and you recall from other episodes as well that I often stress that it's important to be the writer that you want to be. So if you want to be a, a writer that just writes about a certain subject, whether it be fantasy or a or, or cultural matter, uh, you, you can. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But it doesn't mean that you're going to always get a larger audience or a more universal appeal because you're in that particular category that only certain people are going to be interested in. I think when it comes to Maya Angelou, it's the same situation in the sense that there are a number of black writers out there, particularly African-American ones, that that is all that they're able or willing or, or, or capable of doing is in that one category of the uh, the, the black um, personality or the black character or the black uh, person in history or just the, 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 the plight of the black person in a society that doesn't always accept them. So you, you have, you have plenty of writers like, um, like uh, Ralph Allison who wrote, uh, The Invisible Man. I mean, that's a person that wrote, that's just, that's the subject. And, and a lot of his essays about the same thing. So it really didn't transcend that particular subject, maybe because they didn't want to. Uh, Richard Wright also. Uh, doing the Native Son, another example of that, you know, and then we've had a few other writers of of African American uh, background that were able to transcend it. Um, Martin Luther King definitely, with his writings, uh, his actions transcended blackness to a universal appeal. I thought James Baldwin did it, particularly in uh, his essays, and in Maya Angelou. So it's a small group, but she, in many instances, I feel, can talk about that subject matter with with great conviction and, and moral uh, authority but also uh, in many instances transcend that to where you just that person um who needs to to rise up and to stand up and and and, and to fight this for your for yourself and your your place in the world and it didn't have to be about a color but really just about i guess possibly being uh, somebody perceived as the underdog which I think Maya Angelou Emanuel sort of felt and, and wrote a lot about. Now, ironically, uh, like a, a number of, of, of performers and, and, and writers, that she wound up changing her name. Because I don't know if you know this, but uh, Whoopi Goldberg wasn't born Whoopi Goldberg. She was born Karen Johnson. And in the case of Maya Angelou, she was born uh, Margaret Annie 
Johnson. Uh, April the 4th, which is funny because I don't give a lot of credence to, to ethological things, okay? I don't, but I've always had this weird experience to where women who are um, Aries, I always seem to fabulously get along with them, like in perfect friendships all through my entire life. So um, even though I never got a chance to meet uh, Maya, I always felt that looking at her birth date, because I was born April the 3rd, that we probably would have get along fabulously just because of that. I don't know why. Now, I never had any romantic relationships or notions with anybody who were Aries as women, but just the fact that they were Aries seemed to make some kind of cosmic connection. I know, it's plenty of something else. All right, so she's a poet. She's a memoirist, um, uh, the only writer I know that, that wrote seven autobiographies, and we'll talk about that, and of course the civil rights activist. Uh, she wrote a number of, of, of books of plays, uh, of essays, um, a number of uh, books of poetry. Um, she wrote some plays, and she was in some, some movies over like 50 years. She got like over 50 honorary degrees from different places all around the you know, country and the world. The, her big first uh, hit, I guess you could say, uh, on an autobiography level would be uh, I Know Why the Courage Bird Sings in 1969, which is four years after I was born, okay? And um, she wrote a great deal about uh, about her life, and she wrote it in a, in a different type of style than people were used to on, on writing autobiographies. You know, I'm always uh, for changing something around. You know, if it fits what you're trying to do. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what's called creativity. No one says you have to go around writing the exact same story, same short story that everybody's been writing for the last 200 years. Or the same poem or anything else. So she did that differently. She got some criticism for that because they felt that she was fictionalizing some of her life in order to be to put together that type of style and that kind of autobiography. But to me, that's silly. Okay? And the reason why I say that's silly is this. First of all, there's nothing wrong with changing things around. Good. You should do that as a writer. It's a, it's definitely a sign of a, of a creative uh, spirit, okay? Second, Maya Angelou is no different than any of us, okay? You sit down 30, 40, 50 years later, whatever, to write down something. Are you going to have every notion and every fact? No. By, by this... This accident, you're gonna, uh, you're gonna accidentally fictionalize things because they are the best recollection of your memory. So I don't, I mean, when they say that about her, to me it's almost like they're saying that somehow she's making up stuff or she's lying or something. I, I just find that not only rude and un unacceptable, but it's just not very practical to say that. You know, how you can remember everything? And she's lived a, a very interesting and, and fascinating life. Um, <laughs> Listen to a string of jobs she had before she really got into uh, creative stuff uh, on a full-time basis, okay? Uh, she was a fry cook at one point. Another point, she was a sex worker. That's a nice word of saying prostitute. Wow. Then she became a Nightport Club performer. And then she was a, a, a cast member in Poor G and Bess, which I could definitely see. Uh, she was a coordinator for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a big in, in, in civil rights. She went out and become a correspondent for Egypt and, and Ghana when that, when it was going to during the decolonization of Africa. So she got involved in that. So at one point, she was an actress, a writer, she was a director. She produced a number of plays, movies, and public television programs. Okay, then she became a professor 
uh, of American Studies at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, she was definitely active in the Civil Rights Movement. Um, she worked with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, which again, a very creative and, and, and generous spirit because uh, back then, uh, oftentimes the approaches of both of these characters, who both of them were assassinated, by the way, um, were, 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 they're completely different. But mainly because Martin Luther King um, wanted to stress the, um, and I don't, I don't really call it dependence, but definitely uh, he, he had to push about uh, that laws had to be changed and that, that was on a government basis. So I don't really think that makes you dependent on the government if you're stressing that certain things have to be changed in the government because, you know, certain rules about going into a business and have to only go in the back, uh, you know, only being served in certain places, uh, the right to vote, you know, th things like that. I mean, only the government can change that. So it's, it's not like you go to the private sector for that. You know, for, for the most part, that really had to be changed by the government. So, they, in many ways, they made those two men more different than they had to be. Well, more, well Malcolm X was more about uh, the uh, the Islamic uh, religion, and, and uh, Martin Luther King more about the Christian religion. Uh, Malcolm X is more about the, the, the self-reliance, about doing for yourself, being an entrepreneur. I used to laugh and say he was probably the first black Republican, but he wasn't. I think uh, Frederick Douglass was. But nevertheless, for a while they had them guys separate. But she, uh, I guess she understood you know, the value of both, where you had to uh, make sure that you were leaning on the government to do the right thing so that your rights would be protected or at least reestablished. And then at the same point, why shouldn't you rely on yourself? Maybe open your own business up or, you know, operate um, your own philosophy that had less to do with whatever has been preached out there, but rather what you feel you should do as your heart as a free individual in a free society. So I felt in many ways they complemented each other. I really didn't think they needed to be, uh, you know, at odds. And, and people who made them at odds not really helpful because it really wasn't one way or the other they they both uh, had something important to say you know for that for that movement okay she did a number of lectures right up until the point of her uh getting selected to write a poem for the uh the first inauguration of bill clinton as president of the united states and she was uh only the second poet to do that because the first robert frost he did his inauguration poem in 1961 for john f kennedy so she, she did one called On the Pulse of Morning. And we'll talk about that a little bit as well as read that poem for everyone else, okay? I got that here. Now, when Oprah Winfrey got really big on the television circuit, you know, and brought about people uh, of the uh, African-American uh, background on the show, I mean, she was one of the people that she brought on a couple of times, so Maya Angelou, and I think that really helped introduced her people to Maya Angelou because she was not what I call your your um, your typical African-American woman. Um, she uh, was someone who was always curious and always traveling and always doing something different. She wasn't writing this book or that autobiography. She was out there doing this play or acting this play or directing this play or doing this speech. I mean, the woman was like constantly active doing something. She was just on fire on, on just trying to get as much as she can out there. That's why she had such a, a, a rich uh, background. And I think it really informed a lot of her work 
uh, in uh, her poems especially and of course in some of her lectures because I mean if you think about it you're out there talking to people you have to be a people person to be doing anything so whether you're working in a play or directing a play or out there lecturing uh, people on a lecture circuit or out there doing reporting of uh, international things or, or writing poems or you know, just even involved in the whole civil rights struggle, you have to be a people person because you have to connect with others to get things done. So that brings you a lot more rich experience about the human person and the human condition, particularly about how people interact. So I thought that was definitely interesting. Um, some people, they got... I, I guess they got a little twisted about some of her books because in some of her books... Um, she was. She did very really well on defending what was uh, necessary to defend for the black culture. And sometimes her books were used in schools and universities. But other times, they didn't like the fact that, like I said, we mentioned before, that, that she it looked like she fictionalized her autobiographies, which I think is kind of silly. And I think um, she had a, a much more open uh, feeling and, and, and viewpoint about sexuality. Even though she was a straight woman... Um, she had no problem talking about it, you know, and, and her experiences in it. I think she was either molested or raped when she was a child, so that didn't really help too much. But she talked about that to sort of like exercise that demon. And I think she talked about it in general. I know she talked a little bit when she was a, a performer in a night and, and a sex worker for a while. Although we don't really know how long that was, that she was that. But she was that. I like the fact that she definitely changed the structure of the autobiography. She really broadened it out and made it something that would be more more interesting. One of the problems with some of the older styles of writing, and we talked about this when I, when I changed with flash fiction, would be into, into my own idea of concrete minimalism, is about finding your way in the world. And sometimes... The only way you can find your way in the world is you have to build something new for you to fit into it. Because sometimes finding your way doesn't mean you're going to fit. You know, you don't. Sometimes you got to build something new. That's what she did. That's what I did. That's what other writers have done before. I think it's important to note because people feel that finding their way means that they have to simply uh, rely on things that have already been done. Or copy things that have been done. Or, or just simply accept the way things have been done before. And that's not really finding your way. Finding your way is where your place is going to be. If your place is in the traditional structure of a short story, then go there. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you feel that that's not going to work for you, or that's not going to work for somebody else, then, then that's what you got to do then. You have to go and create something new. And that's the reason why I thought... That she made a lot of sense by doing that. Also, if you think about it too, a lot of our autobiographies, while they might mention some things about a family, or it's mostly about yourself. I mean, so you're not going to read a lot of other things about it. But in her autobiographies, she put things in about racism. She put things in about what your identity should be, what her identity she was working on. Uh, she put a lot of things about travel because she did so much travel. You know, so when you read one of those, you, you, you're really catching a, a, her on many different levels. Because in the end, she's trying to tell you 
Listen, I'm existing on so many levels because I am doing so many different things. So I can't fit my life into a traditional autobiography that's been written for the last couple hundred years because it don't fit all the things I want to say, all the things I want to be able to share with people. That's another reason why oftentimes you have to change things that are out there. Not because you think it's so much fun to change things or, or, or get criticism or be some kind of rebel. It's because it's the only way you're going to fit in. It's the only way you're going to fit what you want in there by expanding it or changing it and altering it. That, that's all you can do. And it's the only reason why I feel it makes creative sense because it has to be done for you to be able to you know, stand and say, I am here, I arrived, I am important, I... I matter. My my voice counts for something. Those are the things that you have to be able to say as a writer in order to go forward to the next day of writing, let alone a whole lifetime of it. So you have to make changes, and that's what she did. And to me, that's what makes her uh, extra special is that. Now, before we talked about in the beginning of the show, we mentioned about uh, the universalism of some people. Not everybody's able to do that. I mean, nobody sits out there, especially if you're a black writer. You know, what can I do to make this material more acceptable to the white girl in the suburbs? I don't, I don't think anyone's thinking that way. I really don't. So it's really about, in my in my opinion, because Nelson Mandela did this. He wasn't an African-American. He was actually South African. But he did the same thing that Martin Luther King did and, and James Baldwin did. And my Angelou thing is... They were talking about not just the black experience, but also matters of the human condition. And once you're able to talk about that, now you become universal. Now you can cross bridges that you didn't realize you could cross before. Now someone like myself, some Italian kid from New Jersey, and now some white girl from the suburbs of Minnesota, we can now connect with what the hell you're talking about. Now we have a, a, a someone dealt us into, into your game so we can see what's going on. And that would help change people. That would help educate people. But those people were able to do that because that was the level they were on. They wasn't purposely trying to do that. Like I said, you got plenty of other writers out there. That's what they wrote about, that experience, and that was it. There wasn't interest in going that way. And many interests Malcolm X did not do that. He wrote particularly for the black person, and that was it. The only reason why we felt later on that Malcolm X had maybe some kind of universal appeal and had some kind of message for everybody is because Alex Haley, the writer that did the biography of Malcolm X, it got really famous. He was the same as the guy that wrote Roots, uh, was able to write it in that fashion because he wrote a, a much more traditional biography of, of Malcolm X and covered all the different facets of its life. But he didn't set out or, or tried to do it. In fact, he was actually against that. He always felt that it was not a good idea to lean on white people because people of color needed to stand up for themselves and find their own way and, and make, make their own fight and, and, and win their own battles. That was his, part of his self-reliance philosophy. He wasn't trying to be a racist. That's just what he thought. So his writings are definitely not universal in that regard. Nothing like uh, Martin Luther King, which definitely were. You know, when he's talking about why we shouldn't go into Vietnam or why we, we should, uh, you know, you know uh, reject violence and why we should uh, f not forget uh, as a Christian Jewish nation, you know, the connections we had uh, with each other, 
uh, why uh, communism is is uh, atheistic and, and, and fails, you know, religion in its own right. And he was able to cross all of that because of what he had to say, again, about the human condition. And this is what Maya Angelou did. Now, I got some interesting quotes I have from her. You know, sometimes I can gather these together when I really feel that, that they have some real value and worth to them. And for her, they definitely do because she's just had so much to say and really so much, in my opinion, to, uh, to, share, to share with us because uh, I think it's difficult to do as many jobs as she did over the course of her life and, and not have gains in an enormous amount of, of wisdom and understanding about people in general. It, it's almost like, uh, you know, it, it automatically happens when you, when you have this kind of a wide lifestyle. All right, so here's some quotes. I really like a lot of these, too, because they, 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 really, uh, they really open your mind up and, you know, kind of knock you over the head. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. So I, I like that comment. It's a very human one. And also a very wise one. Because I can, I can definitely testify to the truth of this. Because you could be around people, whether it be in the workplace or, or politics or even in creative stuff, and... In the end, people, I don't care how many years it is later, they do seem to remember the ones that treated them well, the ones that, that seemed so favorable to them more than anything else. They barely can remember what the hell they said, but they remember that they treated them you know, properly and respectfully, or even just in a grand, wonderful manner. People remember that, and she's right. That They remember that, and they never forget that. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. I'm sure she's talking about a lot of the things that she had to deal with in, in her life. I think she was married twice, and uh, she had a number of uh, relationships um, over the course of her years with, with, with men. And um, I'm not sure how many of those went well for her, but I think she had a lot of problems with that. So, and she talks a lot of that in her autobiography. So that's probably the agony she's talking about. It is. It's, it's difficult. Writing in general, when it has any kind of, um, autobiographical or at least, um, what they say, um, confessional element is it, always going to be a bit painful and, and unusual. No doubt. Prejudice is a burden that confuses the past, threatens the future, and renders the present inaccessible. And she's right. Once you uh, prejudge things, you you really just set yourself off on the course of another reality that has nothing to do with what's in front of you. It's like the car is blue, but you're like, no, it's red. And, and you go from there. <laughs> Not good. If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. Well, that's, that's a rough one, and that's a deep one, that's for sure. I know why the caged bird sings. Title of her first autobiography is something that, that we remember all her life and all her writing life. I've heard that so many different times. It's it's really poetic and, and beautiful, you know. 
what's the answer to? I know why the cage bird sings. I guess there could be a couple answers. It could just be that, you know, it's singing to keep up its spirits and so one day it could be free. That could always be an answer. Another answer could be that, you know, it's going to sing no matter what the circumstances are because that's what it does. So you have a couple answers to that. I mean, another answer could just be that it doesn't read, it doesn't realize it's in prison. You know, I wrote a poem about that, uh, Soma and the Unknowing Slave, where I said that some people are slaves and not even realizing it. We talked about that in the conformity episode before this, where you got some folks that that's all they do is listen to their relatives and their family, and they don't know who, who they are anymore because they're living their lives and their identity. In many ways, then, you don't know why you're singing because you're just a... Uh, you know, a, a robotic slave. All right. You may write down in history with your bitter, twisted lines. You may trod me in every in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. It's part of one of her poems. She is really um. I I feel strong in the essence of wanting to uh, pick yourself up. When things can knock you down, whether they can be doubt or fear, where they could be uh, societies trying to say no or blocking you, uh, whether it could just be the challenges of uh, of being creative or the challenges of the workplace, um, she felt that uh, you had to continue to rise, and as long as you did, eventually you were going to find a victory. Love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles, it leaps fences, penetrates walls to arrive at its destination full of hope. Yeah, I think if there's one thing you want to say about Maya Angelou is she was a great, again, a great messenger for love. Some of it was just the love of her own self, learning how to love herself, you know, in, the, in, the, in poverty and racism and sexual molestation, and then, of course, going through the world, being as active as she was. And, of course, uh, you know, um, Maya Angelou isn't a classic-looking woman. You know, she, she, she's a woman that's kind of short, you know what I mean? Uh, kind of like a little pudgy, so to speak. And so she's not your classic beauty, but she's still attractive and interesting. And who knows how that might have uh, played for her in the world, too. But she kept going forward and didn't let any of that sort of stuff stop her. That's why I bring that up, because... Uh, she had a long and rich and romantic life, too, and nothing stopped her, including any of that. So, God bless her for that. We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but we rarely admit the changes it's gone through to achieve the beauty. And that's true, yeah. We have to do that more. It's sometimes not just being happy, you know, for the, uh, for the person that celebrated their 15th year of sobriety. That's important. God knows, but... You know, we have to also mention the challenges that, that, that took them to get there. So this way we have a, a full picture of the person and we also have the, the, the full measure of truth. Because you really can't, in my opinion, uh, truly uh, value victory unless you understood how close you were to defeat. Or how many times before you were defeated. That kind of gives yourself and, and everyone else the full picture. But it also gives the full value of truth or the full value of victory because it kind of gives you a, a small road map to how the hell you got there which is probably through a lot of blood and sweat and tears and mud and everything else so i think that's what she means by that it makes sense to me 
My mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive, and to do so with passion. Some compassion, some humor, and some style. And yeah, that's definitely my Angela. She had a little bit of all of that. Nothing will work unless you do. She was definitely a big proponent of those that kept saying, why is the world not better? And wondering why they're not doing anything about making that world better. All right. There we go. All right, so I'm going to read two of her uh, uh, more popular poems. One I'm really close with for many years, and the other one is just from the uh, the inauguration of of Bill Clinton, the President of the United States, 1993. But I tell you something, without making a joke, whenever you can slip some kind of ancient creature or a dinosaur or something in a poem, you're always doing something great, by my opinion. Okay? On the Pulse of Morning by Maya Angelou. A rock, a river, a tree. Host to species long since departed. Mark the mastodon, the dinosaur who left dried tokens of their sojourn here. On our planet floor, any broad alarm of their hastening doom and the lost of the gloom of the dust and ages. But today the rock cries out to us clearly and forcefully. Come, you may stand upon my back and face your distant destiny. But seek no haven in my shadow. I will give you no hiding place down here. You created only a little lower than the angels. You crouched too long in the bruising darkness, have laid too long face down in ignorance, your mouth spilling words armed for slaughter. The rock cries out to us today, you may stand upon me, but do not hide your face. So it is definitely a heck of a poem, and a, a pretty uh, pretty smart one for an inauguration. All right. Now this is one of my poems that I like by Maya Angelou. It's, it's a personal favorite of mine because it is a perfect example of what we're talking about when somebody can write so much about their personal lives and about the black culture and about racism and about the society in general and then still write things that are universal that are going to reach the rest of us, still bring us on board. This one's called Still I Rise. You, you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Like moons and like suns with certainty of tides. Just like hopes of springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened in my cryful, my soulful cries. Does my heartiness offend you? Don't you take it awfully hard? Cause I laugh like I got gold mines digging in my backyard. You may shoot me with your words, you may cut me with your eyes, you may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air I rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide. Welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving the nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am a dream. I am the hope of the slave. I rise. I rise, I rise. 
to me, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, poem. You don't see too many modern poems that rhyme. They're actually of uh, 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 enormous quality, and and, 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 and I, I feel excitement. Um, also, uh, that's a poem that's, that's for everybody. A black girl can read that and say, yeah. And, and a white guy can read that and say, yeah. Because, you know, you could be rising from an injury or, or disability or a disease or a, a social tragedy or a family tragedy or something that you just happened. You fall down in the garden and hit your head on the rock or something and you just rise because you don't want the rock to win. But we all can get something from that. That's the universality I'm talking about. To me, that makes her that much more extra special because uh, I can get something from from what she's doing as well. And, and writers in general should be able to do that. But again, if you're in a certain area, uh, when you do something like that, to me, it's extra special and definitely something that is not only worth noting but worth writing down. Maybe even putting it on your wall that kind of reminds you. It's one of those poems that... It's just inspirational. It really is. It, it, it's more than anything you're going to get from a, a football coach or a, a, I feel a pastor on TV or, or even a Hallmark card. This is something that you can carry for the rest of your life into the cosmos. They should have put that on the spaceship so the aliens could read it. So they understand that they're going to come down here. They better come down here in peace because uh, we're the people that will keep rising. Even if aliens come down and try to shoot us, um, they're going to get their heads beat in, okay? Because we'll rise. We don't be playing as human beings. And, and, and with that, I end the uh, horrible 2020 year. Uh, certainly, I end it with, a, with a, a poem about rising because God knows as a nation and, and as a planet, we need to rise above this ridiculous uh, COVID thing and move forward. So we can open up businesses and our museums and our hearts and our theaters and go about what we need to do to have a, a normal life again in, in the year 2021. All right, folks, until next time, that was uh, Thoughts on Maya Angelou from the Classic Spotlight Series, episode 174. This is Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, poet, and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.